The nights are long and cold in the winter. The bridges are not always dry. Hot coffee and biscuits at the shelter in the morning. It's not breakfast at home with your wife. And the faces of the strangers that sit there beside you are not always friendly and warm. Some just stare out into the distance, lost and forgotten by life's endless storm. Some of us are homeless, some of us are drifters, some of us are liars and thieves. Some of us drink just to keep warm, some of us drink just to sleep. had me a job once. I worked it for years. One day the plant manager came. We're moving your job down south of the border where your job can be done for less pay. Now my poor wife and kids took this all pretty hard. I began drinking just a little day. The pension I'd worked for got lost in the shuffle When the whole damn company just slipped away Some of us are homeless Some of us are drifters Some of us are liars and thieves Some of us drink just to keep warm Some of us drink just to sleep I looked for work up and down this whole coast. No one was hiring old men. I drifted up north to find work in the vineyards, but I wound up drunk in the pen. And it's almost Christmas, and I'm back in East Medford. The shelter has a green Christmas tree. There was turkey last week, passed out with Thanksgiving, and I saw myself on TV. Some of us are homeless, some of us are drifters, some of us are liars and thieves. Some of us drink just to keep warm, some of us drink just to sleep. Some of us drink just to sleep. And that was Post-NAFTA Drifters Blues Hobo Song by David Christian, which you can find on YouTube. Greetings and welcome back to Bernie 2016. This is an independent podcast established to follow and comment on Bernie Sanders' candidacy and our revolution, the movement he helped inspire. This podcast is completely independent of any candidate, party, pack, or political organization. This is the final episode of Bernie 2016. Episode 50. It's a good place to take stock and figure out how to move forward in a new way. 
This has been a great project. I've really been re-inspired to be politically active, both by Bernie Sanders and by the people that have risen up around his campaign. Not just the ardent Bernie Sanders supporters, the, the really vocal groups that have been out there boosting Bernie in his campaign, but also by the casual supporters and even by the critics that also struggle for a better world but seek alternative routes to get there. There's not only one way for us to move forward, and we won't succeed if we push forward in down one path, down one route only. We need to attack these systemic issues in our country from many, many different places, inside and outside of the system, electoral work as well as activism, as well as uh, creating the solutions that we want outside of the existing system. Like I mentioned, the episode before last, uh, the end of Bernie 2016 is not the end of the road for this podcast. It's just a transition, just as Bernie has transitioned from presidential candidate to a much more powerful progressive voice. And his candidacy has raised his profile and his positions in the public arena. It's amazing how the media is paying much more attention now to what Bernie is fighting for than it ever did before. Bernie's been fighting for these same things for decades. And they've been gotten marginal attention before now. Now they're getting some attention, not necessarily the full attention that they need, but the media is paying much more attention now to what Bernie Sanders is saying and what Bernie Sanders is fighting for than it ever did before, even during his campaign. So we need to continue to fight, and it's more important than ever that we stand up and we stand together and we make our voices be heard. So this podcast will live on as Bernie 2020, not just to follow the expanding efforts of Senator Sanders, but in tackling the issues that Bernie and we stand for and those that we stand against. And we have a hell of a fight to move our issues forward, just as we did under the Reagan and the Clinton and the Bush administrations. There's no time to stand by and watch. It's time to join together. As Bernie says, enough is enough. So that is the direction that this podcast will continue to move into as it shifts and adjusts and I figure out exactly where we go. I'm really grateful to have you all on this ride with me and to have you all in this fight to make our country and our society and our world better for everyone. So in this transition, there will be some new ways to reach me. You can send me a message now at BernieUS2020 at gmail.com, or you can follow my new Twitter feed at BernieUS2020. 2020. And you can find out more about Bernie 2020 at Bernie-2020.com. And the Bernie 2016 
uh, ways to reach out to me won't go away immediately, but they will phase out over time. I'll be posting this podcast on both the Bernie 2020 and the Bernie 2016 feeds for at least through the end of the year. And you can support this podcast in its continuing efforts to present some of the platforms and positions and ideas that Bernie stands for and that we fight for. You can support this podcast by going to patreon.com slash unrelated things and you can pledge your support there. So let's move on to the content in episode number 50. Some of this breaking rather recently. This is from medium.com. The first piece is by Bernie Sanders. And it's called The Era of Outsourcing is Over. During the campaign, Donald Trump made a 100% commitment to prevent United Technologies from shipping 2,100 jobs from Indiana to Mexico. All of us need to hold Mr. Trump accountable to make sure that he keeps this promise. Let's be clear, it's not good enough to save some of these jobs. We cannot rest until United Technology signs a firm contract to keep all of these good-paying jobs in Indiana without slashing the salaries or benefits workers have earned. United Technologies is not going broke. Last year, it made a profit of $7.6 billion and received over $6 billion in defense contracts. It has also received more than $50 million in corporate welfare from the Export-Import Bank and very generous tax breaks. In 2014, United Technologies gave its former CEO, Louis Chenevert, a golden parachute worth over $172 million. Last year, the company's five highest paid executives made over $50 million. The firm also spent $12 billion to inflate its stock price instead of using that money to invest in new plants and workers. I call on Mr. Trump to make it clear to the CEO of United Technologies that if his firm wants to receive another defense contract from the taxpayers of this country, it must not move these plants to Mexico. We need to send a very loud and very clear message to corporate America. The era of outsourcing is over. Instead of offshoring jobs, this time, the time has come for you to start bringing good-paying jobs back to the United States of America. If United Technologies or any other company wants to keep outsourcing decent-paying American jobs, those companies must pay an outsourcing tax equal to the amount of money it expects to save by moving factories to Mexico or other low-wage countries. They must pay back all of the tax breaks and other corporate welfare they have received from the federal government. And they must not be allowed to reward their executives with stock options, bonuses, or golden parachutes for outsourcing jobs to low-wage countries. I will soon be introducing legislation to make sure that Donald Trump keeps his promise to prevent the outsourcing of American jobs. 
For the sake of American workers, this is a promise that cannot and must not be broken. And there is a summary here of the Outsourcing Prevention Act. One, preventing companies that outsource jobs from receiving federal contracts, tax breaks, grants, or loans. Two, clawing back federal benefits from companies that outsource jobs have have received over the last decade. This legislation would require all companies that outsource more than 50 jobs in a given year to pay back all federal tax breaks, grants, and loans they have received from the federal government over the last decade. Three, establishing an outsourcing tax on companies that move U.S. jobs offshore. This legislation would impose a tax on all companies that outsource jobs. The tax would be equal to the amount of savings achieved by outsourcing jobs or 35% of its profits, whichever is higher. United Technologies estimated that it would save $65 million a year by moving its jobs in Indiana to Mexico. Under this legislation, the company would be required to pay a tax of no less than $65 million a year. Four, prohibiting executives from profiting off of the outsourcing of U.S. jobs. This legislation would prohibit companies that offshore jobs from enriching executives through golden parachutes, stock options, bonuses, or other forms of compensation by imposing stiff tax penalties on this compensation. In addition, companies that outsource jobs overseas would be prevented from buying back its own stock. In 2014, United Technologies gave its former CEO a golden parachute worth over $172 million. Last year, the company's five highest paid executives made over $50 million, and the firm also spent $12 billion to inflate its stock price instead of using that money to invest in new plants and workers. So that is there as well as an explanation of part of that bill in addition to being part of the initial initial section of the story. So how well is Trump standing by his promise to stop the outsourcing of jobs? Well, this next piece, also by Bernie Sanders, explains where we are already with uh, Trump and his pledge to stop the outsourcing of jobs. This is from the WashingtonPost.com. It is called, Carrier Just Showed Corporations How to Beat Donald Trump. Today, about 1,000 carrier workers and their families should be rejoicing. But the rest of our nation's workers should be very nervous. President-elect Donald Trump will reportedly announce a deal with United Technologies, the corporation that owns Carrier, that keeps less than 1,000 of the 2,100 jobs in America that were previously scheduled to be transferred to Mexico. Let's be clear, it is not good enough to save some of these jobs. Trump made a promise that he would save all of these jobs, and we cannot rest until an ironclad contract is signed to ensure that all of these workers are able to continue working in Indiana without having their pay or benefits slashed. In exchange for allowing United Technologies to continue to offshore more than 1,000 jobs, Trump will reportedly give the company tax and regulatory favors that the corporation has sought. 
Just a short few months ago, Trump was pledging to force United Technologies to, quote, pay a damn tax. He was insisting on very steep tariffs for companies like Carrier that left the United States and wanted to sell their foreign-made products back in the United States. Instead of a damn tax, the company will be rewarded with a damn tax cut. Wow. How's that for standing up to corporate greed? How's that for punishing corporations that shut down in the United States and move abroad? In essence, United Technologies took Trump hostage and won, and that should send a shockwave of fear through all workers across the country. Trump has endangered the jobs of workers who were previously safe in the United States. Why? Because he has signaled to every corporation in America that they can threaten to offshore jobs in exchange for business-friendly tax benefits and incentives. Even corporations that weren't thinking of offshoring jobs will most probably be reevaluating their stance this morning. And who would pay for the high cost of tax cuts that go to the richest businessmen in America? The working class of America. Let's be clear, United Technologies is not going broke. And this gives the same statistics that I spoke about in the prior story. Does that sound like a company that deserves more corporate welfare from our government? Trump's Band-Aid solution is only making the problem of wealth inequality in America even worse. I said I would work with Trump if he was serious about the promises he made to members of the working class. But after running a campaign pledging to be tough on corporate America, Trump has hypocritically decided to do the exact opposite. He wants to treat corporate irresponsibility with kid gloves. The problem with our rigged economy is not that our policies have been too tough on corporations. It's that we haven't been tough enough. We need to reinstall an ethic of corporate patriotism. We need to send a very loud and clear message to corporate America. The era of outsourcing is over. Instead of offshoring jobs, the time has come for you to start bringing good-paying jobs back to America. If United Technologies or any other company wants to keep outsourcing decent-paying American jobs, those companies must pay an outsourcing tax equal to the amount of money it expects to save by moving factories to Mexico or other low-wage countries. They should not receive federal contracts or any other forms of corporate welfare. They must pay back all the tax breaks and other corporate welfare they have received from the federal government, and they must not be allowed to reward their executives with stock options, bonuses, or golden parachutes. If Donald Trump won't stand up for America's working class, we must. So not a very big surprise there, despite Donald Trump's pledges during the campaign to stop the outsourcing and, quote unquote, make America great again. Uh, in his first big opportunity to show that he really meant what he said, he he signed on to a deal that gives a small benefit to the U.S. workers and a giant benefit to the company moving more than half of those jobs overseas. 
Up next, this piece is by Faye Flam. It is from Bloomberg.com. And it is called Recounts Aren't Useless. They're scientific. Election officials might not want to hear this, but the way we vote isn't scientific. If they were conducted using the scientific method, recounts would be expected, maybe even mandatory. People would want to re-examine the raw data, as former Green Party presidential candidate Jill Stein has been pushing to do in Michigan, Wisconsin, and Pennsylvania. Why? There's no reason to assume elections are any more immune to errors than scientific studies, where replication is often a requirement for acceptance. And that means not just rechecking final results, but either running an experiment again or reevaluating the raw data, akin to hand recounts that Stein, as well as a number of computer scientists, have advocated for. Stein succeeded in Michigan, where hand recount is expected to begin Friday, and lodged a partial victory in Wisconsin, where both hand and machine recounts started on Thursday. This isn't just an exercise in sore losing. Vote counts, after all, aren't any more sacred than any other kind of measurement. It's a key tenet of science that measurements from weight to temperature to cholesterol counts are imperfect reflections of reality. Scientists acknowledge this uncertainty with error bars. If the error bars overlap, they can't definitively declare one value is bigger than the other. Donald Trump won Michigan by 0.28% margin, or about 13,000 votes. Could that be within the margin of error? Could a hand recount flip the result? Rebecca Mercury, a computer scientist who studies voting technology, says it's unlikely, but not impossible. A recount would let observers zero in on anomalies. In Michigan, for example, 84,000 people voted in state and local races, but apparently left the space for president blank. Typically, the opposite happens, with voters leaving more blanks further down the ballot. Those people might have skipped the presidential candidates in protest, but Mercury wonders why this wasn't reflected in exit polls. If something was askew in the ballot reading machines, so they were looking for marks a fraction of an inch off the right spot, it could account for such a discrepancy. Unfortunately, that kind of technical glitch would only be picked up in a hand recount, the kind where human eyes every ballot, where a human eyes every ballot, and not a machine recount. Electronic errors or deliberate hacks can go undetected by machines. Mercury says, noting that they can noting they can miss problems with scanners and vote tabulation software quote as the saying goes with computers garbage in garbage out she says that could be a problem in wisconsin with its mix of hand and machine recounts still an automated recount is better than none at all what's more even recounts that don't change the election results are valuable if it weren't for the bush v gore recount in 2000 for example we never would have known how bad punch card machines are at measuring voter intent. 
Quote, the data from Florida 2000 has yet to be mined fully to learn all the lessons we can learn about election administration, said Doug Jones, a computer scientist at the University of Iowa and co-author of Broken Ballots, Will Your Vote Count? Even if no hacking is uncovered this time around, he said, a recount will be revealing. Stein is still pushing for a recount in Pennsylvania. If nothing else, computer scientists say holding one there would expose the scandal that so many of the state's voting machines leave no paper trail. If voting were more scientific, nobody would use electronic machines that fail to record original data, retaining only totals. These touchscreen machines look technologically swanky, but from a scientific point of view, they're unacceptable. When scientists insist on transparency and independent verification, science can self-correct. Just a few years ago, astrophysicists from Harvard and Caltech went public with the finding that they'd recorded waves in space-time emanating from the origin of the universe. Rival groups reevaluated their data and then used a separate observation to show that the first group had only recorded a signal from foreground dust, not the Big Bang. The system worked. Stein's critics say there's no reason for a recount because there's no evidence of hacking. But in science, the investigation is the way you get evidence. What you need at the outset is a plausible hypothesis. And, and computer scientists have shown an election hack is plausible by repeatedly hacking into voting machines. Scientists are spending billions to search for life on Mars and beyond, though no direct evidence exists. How can they get evidence if they don't go out and look? So I thought that was a really, really interesting take on the recounts that were launched by Jill Stein and are underway now. It's... I don't understand. There's so much backlash. Jill Stein posted a, a tweet yesterday, completely unrelated to the recounts. It was it was a, a tweet about Standing Rock, and just got a litany of hatred over her stance on calling for the recounts. I don't understand what the uh, Trump supporters or Hillary supporters or whomever is so vehemently against this recount. I, I don't understand where they're coming from. I think the only legitimate concern about recounting votes cast is that it costs money and somebody has to pay for that. I think that is the only legitimate concern. I guess there's a, a a smaller, smaller concern. Okay, so there's two. Concern number two is that someone will deliberately screw up the recount in favor of their candidate. So there's a, a, a very minor secondary concern. These recounts are conducted with multiple observers reviewing each ballot. Observers for any of the candidates on the ballot are welcome to and and I don't know all the specific legal rules of each recount. These are are run by the states, but from what I understand, representatives from each candidate that is that are on that ballot 
can watch that recount happen and can be observers and take part in that way of the recount. The only outcome of the recount should be, if conducted properly, that we get a more accurate count of the votes. Who the hell does not want a more accurate count of the votes? I guess the person who won but is afraid that they didn't really win by accurate counts of the votes, but by something else that happened. And of course, the internet's a very, very bad measure of how people feel about anything because those people who scream the loudest and uh, tend to be the most vulgar tend to uh, be the most prolific as well. So good on Jill for calling for the recounts. Um, I would be happy for to see recounts in additional places as well. The time frame for requesting recounts is probably passed in most locations at this point. Um, but the only way to really, really have great confidence in our systems is to test them repeatedly before, during, and after those systems are used. So I think the recount is beneficial to us. Okay, let's move on to the next item. The next item is from democracynow.org. And this is an interview with Cornell West. It is called, it is titled, Cornell West, unlike Bernie Sanders, I'm not convinced that the Democratic Party can be reformed. In the wake of Donald Trump's election victory over Hillary Clinton, some progressives are now pushing a shakeup of the Democratic Party's leadership in efforts to reform the party. But Dr. Cornell West says he doubts the Democratic Party can be reformed. During the Democratic primary, West endorsed Bernie Sanders. Sanders later picked him to serve on the Democratic Platform Committee. After Hillary Clinton won the nomination, West made headlines when he endorsed Green Party presidential candidate Jill Stein. For more, we speak with West about the Democratic Party and what organizing looks like in the wake of the election. And Amy Goodman of Democracy Now! is the interviewer. Democracy Now! just had its anniversary, and I want to say it's 20 years. It's a really, really good news source if you want to get news beyond the mainstream. Amy Goodman. So a lot of questions, and I encourage people to watch the full hour at democracynow.org. You're a big supporter of Bernie Sanders. You served on the Democratic Platform Committee on behalf of Bernie Sanders. Do you think he's right to rework on reforming the Democrats rather than focus on his on building a new party. He is leading a movement called Our Revolution. He has said we have to work with Donald in different ways. He says to the people who supported him, Elizabeth Warren in the last day has said she is not so clear she's going to be working with Donald Trump. I mean, very interesting when Barack Obama came in, Mitch McConnell made it clear they won't work with Obama at all. But what are your thoughts on all this, the inside-outside strategy? 
Cornell West. Well, I think there's going to be a lot of different responses. I have a deep love and respect for Brother Bernie Sanders. I always will. I don't always agree with them. I'm not convinced that the Democratic Party can be reformed. I think it still has a kind of allegiance to a neoliberal orientation. It still has allegiance to Wall Street. The very victory of Nancy Pelosi is a sign that neoliberalism is still hegemonic in the party. I hope that Keith Ellison is able to present a challenge to it. But my hunch is, and Amy Goodman breaks in, as head of, if he makes it in as head of the Democratic National Committee, and Cornell West continues, if he's head of the DNC, but my hunch is the Democratic Party has simply run out of gas. I mean, this is a party that couldn't even publicly oppose TPP when we debated that in the platform committee. And that's just one small example. It couldn't stop. It couldn't vote to stop fracking and so on. So it's still tied to big money. And Amy Goodman has a follow up. Even though Hillary Clinton had changed her position because of the pressure of Bernie Sanders on TPP. Exactly. And right there in the debates, they got the word from the White House. We didn't want to embarrass the president. Embarrass the president? What about the poor and working people who are dealing with the suffering? Is that less important than embarrassing the president? And they were very clear about that. And I pushed and pushed and pushed. Here's somebody, they can't even talk about the Israeli occupation honestly. The president uses language in 2009. They can't use it in the platform. Why? Because they're tied to the lobby. They're tied to APAC. So that when you have those kinds of restraints on you, these albatrosses around your neck, how are you going to be a party for the people? How are you going to be a party for working people, poor people? How are you going to be a party for those brothers and sisters in Yemen who are dealing with U.S.-supported troops and bombs killing them, mediated with Saudi Arabian government? How are you going to deal with the Palestinians, deal with the Israeli occupation? How are you going to deal with Africans, the expansion of AFRICOM, and so forth? There has to be some integrity and moral consistency. And unfortunately, the Democratic Party just strikes me as not being able to meet the challenge. But I'll work with Brother Bernie Sanders and others, both out of love and because I know his in his heart, he's got a certain deep commitment to working people. But now, even as independent socialists, He's behaving as a New Deal liberal. What does that mean? That means he is a, well, a democratic socialist is a radical who's critical of the system. A New Deal liberal works within the system and doesn't want to bring massive critique for structural change. And I can understand it because he's inside. But those of us who are outside and free, we're going to tell the truth. We're going to be honest. We will have certain kind of moral and spiritual integrity. And no matter how marginal that makes us, we're not in any way going to become well-adjusted to, to this injustice out here. So that was a part of the interview with Cornell West on Democracy Now! So you can go to Democracy Now! and find the rest of that. They're at democracynow.org. And the title of this piece was Cornell West. Unlike Bernie Sanders, I'm not convinced the Democratic Party can be reformed.
And next up from Jezebel.com by Megan Reynolds, piece called Ace Hardware Stores Near Standing Rock Are Not Selling Supplies to Dakota Access Pipeline Protesters. On the heels of an emergency evacuation order from the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers and North Dakota Governor Jack Dalrymple and fines of $1,000 set for those who would deliver supplies like water and food, it seems like Ace Hardware has fallen in line with law enforcement and is refusing to sell supplies to protesters. Singer Nico Case tweeted what appears to be an official statement from Ace Hardware that plainly states that they will be complying with law enforcement's desires and will, quote, refrain from selling materials that could be used at the camps. Citing the safety of their employees, customers, and services, but clarifying that their refusal to sell goods to the protesters is, quote, not a reflection of any corporate viewpoint on the pipeline project. The statement rightfully infuriated many people. And I think it's hard for them to say that their decision is not a reflection of any corporate viewpoint on the pipeline project. I guess they can fall back on the uh, the excuse that soldiers around the world use when they commit atrocities and they say they were just following orders they were told to do it they were doing their duty they were serving their country so I guess they can fall back on on that and say we were told by people in charge the people in charge by law enforcement not to do this thing so we are following their orders why is this co- why is this company taking orders from law enforcement their activity is not an illegal activity it is not illegal for a hardware store to sell hardware items to sell propane and rope and shovels and hammers and nails that i don't believe under almost any circumstances that that's an illegal activity Maybe if someone came into the store with their list of items to buy and they put they they showed that list to the clerk and they say, here, I'm building a bomb and I'm going to take that bomb and I'm going to detonate it to kill all these people. Here's what I need from my bomb. In that specific limited circumstance, maybe there's a law that might apply but not here on wednesday night the hashtag boycott ace hardware started making the rounds on twitter the fines are one thing nefarious and unnecessarily cruel but ace hardware refusing to sell supplies to these protesters is somehow worse with 2,000 veterans pledging to stand in solidarity as a human shield on December 4, Ace Hardware's compliance with law enforcement's attempt to cut the protesters off by literally starving them out and hitting them with water cannons and rubber bullets could very quickly made it back, make a bad situation even worse. So shame on Ace Hardware. I wish I was a regular customer of Ace Hardware so I could 
have an impact with a boycott, but uh, regular or not, I won't be shopping at Ace Hardware unless they publicly reverse their decision in this case. Uh, the North Dakota police, and I don't know the specific entity there that represents or, or in, entails the police department, but the police in North Dakota were either planning to or actively were stopping cars and uh, confiscating supplies destined for the camps. They have stated in the last day or two that they won't be confiscating supplies for the camps unless those are illegal. They would only be confiscating illegal items if they stopped any cars and search those cars. So uh, I guess that's a start. But the protesters at Standing Rock, they're up there fighting, ongoing. Uh, I don't want to say escalating. And I call them protesters, and, and that's not what they call themselves. That's what the media, that's what the North Dakota police and government and many people call them protesters they are in some ways protesting they're protesting this activity that is on land they believe is sacred or land that is sacred to them um but they stand as water protectors that's how they're fighting that is the way they wish to be known there's a channel out there that started as did start as Bernie TV. It's now um, Political Revolution TV. It's politicalrevolution.tv. They have a YouTube channel. So I was watching a program. It was actually a rebroadcast from a couple of months ago. And it was the Native Americans from Standing Rock. And they were walking to the local courthouse where the police station was. And there was a video recording of that march to that police station. And the people marching then encircled the station and spoke really eloquently about why they're doing what they're doing. And they asked for forgiveness for the mistakes they had made in their actions. And they forgave the law enforcement. Um, It was a really powerful demonstration of how a large number of those water protectors feel and think and act about this particular issue. So I think it's, uh, there's a whole lot, a whole lot of depth that you don't get in the media or you don't get in the traditional media. And there's even a whole lot of depth you don't get in the alternative media or the real or the true or the, the people's media as it were. Um, but you can get some, a lot more of that nuance from 
the people's media. You don't get the headlines that say protesters clash with law enforcement. When what happened in reality was that law enforcement attacked the water protectors with water cannons and rubber bullets and percussion grenades and tear gas. Tear gas. This isn't this isn't your little uh, personal mace that many officers carry around. If you look at pictures from Standing Rock that show law enforcement, show the front lines, which are gas-masked and face-masked and shielded and body-armored, you'll see some of them holding what look like fire extinguishers. These are like foot or foot and a half long metal canisters, but they're not fire extinguishers. They're they're mace. They're not exactly cannons, but they're they're weapons. They're this is they fire mace, sometimes foaming, sometimes otherwise, from these big canisters into the faces of the people that are in front of them to try to control those people and control their actions. And it's pretty disgusting. It's probably, it's, it's certainly the biggest, most well-known, most well-publicized, even though it's not particularly well-publicized to the general public, but it's the biggest fight for human rights at a single location in our country at this point in time. There's certainly other bigger, broader, constant battles that we're fighting in this country for human rights. But as a specific individual action, individual location, it's probably the biggest one happening right now in the country. So here's a piece from theroot.com, and it is written by Charles D. Ellison. And I thought I found this piece really, really interesting, even though I don't agree with it in total. But I thought it was a something that was really, really important to be aware of and cognizant of as we move our issues forward. It is titled Four Ways the Jill Stein Recount Screws Black Voters. Americans are, based on their loosely knit religious-like obsession with professional sports, a replay nation. When bad calls occur, millions of fans jump from couches and look to replays for divine intervention. For proof, look no further than the oversized hope that the Green Party candidate Jill Stein's ambitious move to recount ballots in Wisconsin, Michigan, and Pennsylvania will somehow help us take back that big national oops we call President-elect Donald Trump. Because let's face it, the blame for where we've ended up lands on us all. It's not just the manipulation of the process that put us in the current predicament. It was also our collective inability to swiftly repel Trump when we had the chance. 
Slam the electoral college all you want, but when more than 40% of the electorate won't show up, what else did you think was going to happen? With Trump's motley crew of transition picks giving us a massive Tums moment, excitement bubbled up that Stein could pull us back from the brink. That's not happening. And with Stein hauling a handsome pile of cash from the replay faithful, what's unnoticed are four ways that this effort leaves an already ass-out black electorate in the lurch. One, let Stein and Clinton tell it voter suppression doesn't exist. Stein's focus is the quest for deliberate irregularities in the electoral system, such as, for example, voter machine and database hacking. Strangely, Stein 16 ignores a deep look into the systemic election hack that we did see take place, especially in the states like Wisconsin and Pennsylvania. Voter ID laws and other carefully designed voter suppression tactics. Nor is the Clinton campaign interested. When Clinton campaign counsel Mark Eric Elias felt compelled to pen a medium piece on the tag team with Stein, every plausible election hack theory was mentioned, even fake news. Just not the fact that we just experienced the first major election without the full Voting Rights Act protection in 50 years. And I think this is a really, really important item. I think that it's false to lay this on Jill Stein and say Jill Stein doesn't care about this because she's asking for something else. In a recount, Jill Stein can only ask for what the law allows to be reviewed or recounted. That doesn't mean she won't take other steps in other ways and hasn't and and doesn't mean she hasn't. And I would say she probably, she likely has. She's certainly spoken about it. Um, taken efforts to be supportive of everyone's right to vote and oppose all of those measures largely instituted by Republicans, largely in the name of quote-unquote voter fraud, which hardly exists in this country. Um, So Jill Stein's been there. And yes, true, this specific recount action does not necessarily address this issue. And uh, this is why I found this this piece to be really, really important. There is a whole big, broad range of issues around voting and voter rights and the ability and ease of which people are able to vote, able to find a polling place, able to cast their vote in a way that doesn't take them several hours of waiting in a goddamn line to try to cast a vote for someone you don't really even like that much. No wonder 40% of the public stays home. It, we need to make this easier. And yes, absolutely, the recount effort doesn't focus on that issue and is still a critically important issue to follow up on. The impact of the elimination of much of the Voting Rights Act protection was severe. This we do know, long lines at polling places serving black and brown populations, polling place closures, intact voter ID laws, early voting elimination in some states, voter roll purges in others, and the micromanaging harassment of Trump-inspired poll watchers. States like Texas and North Carolina straight ignored federal orders to behave. 
In Wisconsin, observers noticed a 41,000 vote drop from 2012. In Pennsylvania, election judges and poll watchers were still asking for voter IDs, even though that law was axed in 2012. These are all the battleground states with these are all battleground states with large black population clusters. So what's the deal? That's a pretty big election hack if there ever was one. Something that's easily substantiated by a great deal of constant oversight from civil rights groups, watchdogs, and an outgoing Obama administration justice department. It's as if black voter grievances don't matter. Item number 2. Here's the catch. A recount could bolster voter suppression. That sounds a bit off, but that's the catch-22 as Stein keeps at this. This talk about the need for a recount prompted by accusations that the election integrity was widely compromised could actually give voter ID proponents the I told you so moment they need. That unfortunately could prompt a fresh movement from Republican state legislatures and governors who want to keep their black, brown, and college-age voting populations perpetually boxed in, since states could move to strengthen or reenact an array of creative voter ID laws. And why not, they'll say, even the liberals say we've got a voting system problem. Of course, they'll ignore charges that voting machines were hacked or didn't work, and they will act as if they never did create the elaborate voter suppression land we now live in. President-elect Trump's nocturnal tweet fantasy claiming that illegal votes lost him the popular vote is a tip of that charge. If colluding Green Party cats and Democrats aren't careful, Republicans could throw a big okey-doke on the recount effort, twisting it into a need for more voter fraud mitigation efforts, even though we've never had a voter fraud problem. But thanks to Stein, sure we do, and we know who ends up getting hurt the most when that happens. So this is totally a straw man argument. This is saying that Stein raising specific issues and asking for a, a legally allowed recount will embolden people on the other side, Trump supporters in this case, to push further and harder for voter suppression. They're already doing that. You, you just, in your previous point, listed that this doesn't pay attention to voter suppression. Now you're saying, well, this will enhance their, this will make them want to suppress our votes more. No, it won't. They already want to suppress your votes. If you're not voting for them, they want to suppress your votes. They use that exact language as part of their campaign. Uh, the Trump campaign did. Said they had multiple voter suppression efforts. Item number three, it won't change anything. It was last reported that Stein was, quote, within striking distance of her $7 million recount financial goal. And I'm going to divert for a moment here. I don't, I, I don't have the exact recent number, but she was getting close to $7 million last I looked. And the initial estimate of the cost of the recount in Wisconsin that Wisconsin gave to her was something in the neighborhood of $1.1 million. And the bill they actually presented to the Stein campaign for the recount was $3.5 million. So uh, a, a lot of growth there between what they estimated and what they actually 
build the Stein campaign for or will be building the Stein campaign for. I don't know exactly how all that works on the back end, but uh, that $7 million is not going nearly as far as it initially was believed that it would be going, but it is going to the recount. And if there's anything left over after the recounts, it's going to fight these other issues. It's going to uh, fight for machines and equipment that have paper trails. It's going to fight for election integrity. And I would bet it's going to fight to oppose voter suppression uh, efforts. Jill Stein has put out a series of tweets over the last probably three days outlining a ton of issues that would make voting easier, better, more effective, and would improve our democracy. So let's get back to item three. It won't change anything. It was last reported that Stein was within striking distance of her $7 million recount financing financing goal. But the only thing a replay will accomplish is, well, Stein raising double what she raised throughout the entire course of her flatlining presidential campaign. Okay, so you can say that her campaign was poor as far as attracting supporters, but I don't understand what you're trying to get at there. We just got finished with one circus announcer dropping outlandish campaign promises he clearly had no plans to keep. Now comes a new one from the far reaches of the old school left, hustling false hope to the masses, especially the black ones grieving over President Barack Obama's replacement. So perfect way to smear this effort is to equate Jill Stein with Donald Trump. No further comment. It's not as if this gives Stein any more votes than the barely registered 2% she got on November 8. And it's not likely that Clinton will get any mojo back. So what's the real purpose of this exercise? Despite all of its hollow diversity talk over the years, the Green Party likely doesn't have any plans to help viable state, local, or federal political candidates of color who seem much more qualified than she is. So what's the point? That's just totally BS. Well, I don't know if it's totally BS. I do know, I think there may be a kernel of truth there in the very early manifestations of the Green Party in the U.S. Uh, They did have diversity challenges. And I think that is not necessarily still the case with the Green Party. But I'm not super close to the Green Party and its... um, hierarchy. Uh, But I do know that they do run a whole lot of state, local, and federal political candidates, many of whom are of color or are women, uh, and who have varying qualifications. This this piece specifically says they seem to have much be much more qualified than she is. So again, this whole section was just a smear on Jill Stein and the Green Party. Item number four, it's one giant distraction. That's what former state Senator Nina Turner called it in a recent conversation with The Root. Quote, I'm afraid it is, especially when we need to focus on 2017 and then 2018, argued Turner, who plans on re-entering the political scene at some point. 
But Turner's right. Generally low voter enthusiasm and disastrous outcomes from the cycle should be a wake-up call for aggressive political planning and mobilization for upcoming 2017 state races and 2018 congressional midterms. Turnout in the 2014 midterm, that really important every two-year cycle everyone gets miffed about but few participate in, was an atrocious 36.7%, down from an equally disheartening 41.8% in 2010. One main culprit? Black voters, for the most part, who just won't pay attention to really crucial midterm and state legislative cycles, largely conceding them to white voters who, in turn, cement Republican majorities in Congress, as well as control of most state legislatures and governor's mansions. For for municipal elections, forget about it. Local election turnout on average is 20%, and yet 2017 presents big opportunities for the black electorate to gain back a little lost ground by picking governors in New Jersey and Virginia, along with friendlier legislatures in those states, as well as new mayors in big cities. So where to start here? First of all, it's one giant distraction. I I don't wholly disagree. I I think it's I think it's critically important to have confidence in how we vote and in the equipment we use to tabulate and the methods we use to tabulate those votes. I think in that sense this is a very very important endeavor. I think it only will have marginal impact on changing those systems for the better. Unless they actually find real serious hacking of equipment or real serious defects in equipment, I don't think there will be any major changes that happen based on this recount that will have a big lasting impact. So... I I think it is an important, but I don't think it's a critical item. I don't think it's where we should be putting all of our efforts, but we're not putting all of our efforts into this. The recount will take a whole lot of people a very short amount of time to accomplish. And then it will take a very small amount of people a longer amount of time to review and to criticize and to support and to bs or whatever they want to do however they want to spin it'll 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 take them a while to get their spin on things but it it doesn't it we can support it and not and still not divert an enormous amount of our energy to it i gave of the that roughly seven million dollars that jill stein has raised to this point i gave five dollars of it i've talked about it a few times to uh, friends and family and here on the podcast. And that's the extent. I did I did think about, because I'm not all that far from Pennsylvania, I did think about becoming an observer in a county in Pennsylvania. And that hasn't moved forward far enough yet. I don't know if the Pennsylvania recount will move forward. And I don't know what being an observer would actually what benefit being an observer would be seeing as the machines used in Pennsylvania, at least in the majority of Pennsylvania 
don't have a paper trail. So all you can do is ask the machine's memory what the total was, but you've already asked it what the total was. Uh, so that's that. Um, what else? So uh, they did mention this in 2017 presents big opportunities for the black electorate to gain back a little lost ground by picking governors in New Jersey and Virginia. And I am in New Jersey. And yes, we do uh, elect our governor on odd years. I've not been in New Jersey all that long. New, new to New Jersey and its politics. Uh, but we will be electing a governor next year. Many of you know, may know our current governor, Chris Christie, or found out something about him as he ran for president and then became part of the Trump transition team and may or may not go on to become part of the Trump government, of course, when we had our discussions about here. So if you don't know anything about Chris Christie, here's a thing to know about Chris Christie. When he ran for, I believe he was running for re-election. I don't know 100% of all the little details here, but I know the big overarching bits of this story. So he was running for governor. And the mayor of Fort Lee, who I'm pretty darn certain is a Democrat, didn't endorse him. So he got pissed. So Christie and his aides don't know don't know for sure who came up with the idea to start with decided it would be a really really good idea a good way to get back at this mayor of Fort Lee to disrupt traffic on the George Washington Bridge now the George Washington Bridge is one of uh two or three major routes into New York City from northern New Jersey it's the major route into New York City a a giant chunk of traffic every day that's going into the city goes over the George Washington bridge. So these aides determined that it would be a good idea. It would be great revenge to cause massive gridlock in the town of Fort Lee. Oh yeah. Fort Lee happens to sit on the New Jersey side of the George Washington bridge. It would be a great idea. They thought to disrupt the traffic on the George Washington Bridge and caused major gridlock. So they did. They closed down a lane or two on that bridge. One, I don't know if it was a bright, shining morning. I was going to call it a bright, shining morning. It may have been raining. I'm not sure. They closed down a lane or two. I don't know specifically exactly how much of it they closed. And it caused a massive traffic backup. I mean, people waiting hours to get into the city, including emergency vehicles, including an ambulance trying to either get to someone or get someone to a place where they could save them. Um, it was one of one of the dumbest things a politician has ever done or a politician's staff has ever done. Maybe the dumbest thing Chris Christie has done, although joining the Trump uh, 
campaign may be on that, or certainly on that list, maybe higher or lower, not really sure. But I guess that worked out pretty well for him. Anyway, Christie is our current governor. He can't run again due to term limits. So we will have a new governor in 2017. And the major candidates for the Democrats are crap. And I'm not sure who the major candidates for the Republicans are yet, but I would bet they're also crap. There is a multimillionaire Democrat running, and I envisioned him as the Hillary Clinton of the race. As people heard that he was interested, as people believed he was going to join this race with his millions of dollars, he got to the top of the list. He got to be the entitled one. He got to be the one that everyone expects to win if the Democrats win this race. So, and, and a whole lot of, or a number of people who may have otherwise run didn't. They chose not to because of him and his money in this race. So it's not exactly a coronation. There are some candidates opposing him. Uh, there's another candidate, and I'm not even going to try to get, try to uh, pronounce his name because I don't have it in front of me. It starts with a W. All right, I'm going to try to pronounce it, but without looking at it, I totally am going to get it wrong. But it's like, um, when is Jevsky? I don't know. It's, it's probably not that. Something along those lines. He actually has something in his favor. He was Bernie Sanders' state campaign manager. Of course, Bernie Sanders lost badly in the state of New Jersey. Uh, Not all the manager's fault, but I didn't see a whole lot of action here for Bernie. Um, It seemed mostly like they, they left Hillary to take the state. In any event, unfortunately, that's probably his only really solid progressive bona fide. He is against a woman's right to, or has voted and supported bills that were against a woman's right to choose. He is far from a real progressive in this race. There is a real progressive. There is a, a Bernie Democrat running in this race. Her name is Lisa McCormick. It's going to be a hell of a hard time for her to catch on and to become the Democratic nominee with her being up against uh, Mr. W, who has some somewhat extensive political background within the state, and then Mr. Moneybags, don't even know what his name is. Uh, It's going to be a hell of a hard time, but that's so what? Kudos to you, Lisa McCormick. Um, I will be supporting you in the Democratic primary. And I'm only marginally still a Democrat. I, I, but I, I love what you're trying to do. I love everyone who's trying to reform the Democratic Party. But I think my, I fall a little closer to Cornell West's assessment in that it, it's, it's not really reformable in the long run. And if you want to talk about distractions, this recount is not a distraction to winning in the future. 
it's trying to reform the Democratic Party and spending an enormous amount of effort to get inches in that endeavor. Money is too pervasive in politics, in electoral politics. It's hell of a hard road to go down. So I don't remember exactly where I was going with that. But uh, yes, New Jersey will be electing a governor in 2017. A new governor, because our old governor is moving on. Oh yeah, where I wanted to go, where I started talking about the bridge and the whatnot. So causing this major, major debacle. And, and at least two of Christie's aides have been found guilty of, I don't know specifically what charges, but of charges based on their participation in what is known as Bridgegate here. Um, but I think the, the most appropriate uh, job for Chris Christie in the new Trump administration, of course, without any doubt, is Secretary of Transportation. So looking forward to it. All right, so that wraps up this story. I, I, I do think this story made one really, really, really good point. Vote, uh, voter suppression, that, that this recount will not directly tackle voter suppression. It may marginally. It may have the unintended consequence of emboldening a few people that are trying to suppress voters. But that's a fight we're already fighting. But I I did think that that was a really, really important piece. There's a whole lot of things that Republicans and Democrats do in the electoral system that disenfranchises a whole host of people out there, whether they be African-Americans, whether they be Latinos, whether they be recent immigrants, whether they be third-party supporters. A whole lot of us get disenfranchised in a lot of different ways. And it's a really critically important issue for us to continue to focus on. And Jill Stein has a lot of great ideas around that. Like I mentioned earlier, she tweeted probably a dozen to 20 different tweets in the last couple days on uh, making our elections more fair and equitable for all of us to participate in. And a lot of those were prefaced with Democrats and Republicans and then followed by her idea of what they should focus on if they want elections to be fair and equitable and they want more people to participate. Problem is they don't want more people to participate. They want more of their people, more of their supporters to participate, but they want less of their opponent supporters to participate. So that's where we are. If they're writing the laws on how we manage our elections and they want to diminish their opponent's ability to win those elections, then they're going to 
gerrymander districts, which means redrawing those district lines in a way that benefits themselves. So instead of having districts that follow town or county lines, you get these crazy dumbass districts that are big O shapes because they wanted to include this these constituencies that they know are supportive of themselves uh, in this di- in this new district. So they drew the map in this crazy effed up way to benefit themselves. But that's what you get when you let the inmates run the asylum. Apologies to anybody who is in an asylum. Next up from commondreams.org. This piece is by Deidre Fulton, and it is titled Enough to Make Me Gag. Warren and Sanders decry latest big pharma giveaway. U.S. Senators Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren have come out swinging against a heavily lobbied health care bill they say has been hijacked by big pharma. The 21st Century Cures Act, poised to pass the House on Wednesday and the Senate soon after, would ostensibly advance medical innovation with increased funding for initiatives like Vice President Joe Biden's cancer moonshot and Alzheimer's research, as well as provisions to accelerate the Food and Drug Administration's approval process. Unsurprisingly, it has attracted significant interest from the pharmaceutical industry, According to Kaiser Health News, quote, other than major appropriations bills, a transportation spending bill, and an energy infrastructure funding bill, the Cures Act garnered more lobbying activity than any of the more than 11,000 bills proposed in the 114th Congress, analysis of the Center for Responsive Politics data shows. Despite skepticism from some liberal advocacy and labor groups, the bill is, quote, expected to win support from other Democrats who have been negotiating with Republicans for months. But in a floor speech Monday evening, Warren said that the legislation is an example of how lawmakers are beholden to big moneyed special interests. Quote, and when American voters say Congress is owned by big companies, this bill is exactly what they are talking about. Now we face a choice. Will this Congress say that, yes, we're bought and paid for? Or will we stand up and work for the American people? She decried the bill's bipartisan support as based on false promises and charged that, in fact, Democrats have, Democrats have been victims of, quote, extortion. Quote, Republican leaders are playing a crafty game, trying to buy off Democratic votes one by one by tacking on good bipartisan proposals that senators in both parties have worked on in good faith for years. A bipartisan mental health bill, bipartisan provisions protecting the genetic privacy of patients, bipartisan provisions to give some very limited funding for important priorities like our national opioid crisis and the vice president's cancer moonshot initiative, a proposal to improve foster care. I support most of these proposals, she said. I've worked on many of them for years. I even wrote several of them myself. If this bill becomes law, there is no question it will contain some real legislative accomplishments. But I cannot vote for this bill. 
I will fight it because I know the difference between compromise and extortion. Compromise is putting together common sense health proposals supported by Democrats, by Republicans, and by most of the American people, and passing them into law. Extortion is holding those exact same proposals hostage unless everyone agrees to special favors for campaign donors and giveaways to the richest drug companies in the world. Compromises when senators, Democrats, and Republicans find the way forward on issues that matter to their constituents. Extortion is telling those same senators to forget what your constituents want, nothing to deal with the skyrocketing cost of prescription drugs, and nothing to increase medical research. Instead, every important common-sense bipartisan bill on mental health, genetic privacy, opioid addiction, foster care, and anything else will die today unless Democrats meet Unless Democrats agree to make it easier for giant drug companies to commit fraud, give out kickbacks, and put patients' lives at risk. This demand is enough to make me gag. According to Stat, quote, After Warren ended her speech, a stunned-looking Senator John Cornyn rose and protested the Senator's language and tone. Cornyn called for more civility. I don't know all that much about John Cornyn, but I know he's been around a while, and I would bet that he has at times been a whole hell of a lot less civil than uh, Senator Warren was there. Echoing some of Warren's concerns, Sanders added in a statement on Tuesday, quote, At a time when Americans pay by far the highest prices in the world for prescription drugs, this bill provides absolutely no relief for soaring drug prices. The greed of the pharmaceutical industry has no limit, and this bill includes numerous corporate giveaways that will make drug companies even richer. This is a bad bill which should not be passed in its current form. It's time for Congress to stand up to the world's biggest pharmaceutical companies, not give them more handouts. Warren went even further, concluding her address, quote, Republicans are taking over Congress. They are taking over the White House. But Republicans don't have majority support in this country. The majority of voters supported Democratic Senate candidates over Republican ones, and the majority supported a Democratic presidential candidate over a Republican one. The American people didn't give Democrats majority support so we could come back to Washington and play dead, she said. This didn't send us here to whimper. They didn't send us here to whimper, whine, or grovel. They sent us here to say no to efforts to sell Congress to the highest bidder. They sent us here to stand up for what's right. Now they are watching, waiting, hoping, hoping we show some spine and start fighting back when Congress completely ignores the message of the American people and returns to all its same old ways. And this next piece is from HuffingtonPost.com, and it is by Becky Bond and Zach Exley. It is called What People Who Are Concerned About the Trump Presidency. No, it's not. It's called What Can People Who Are Concerned About the Trump Presidency Do to Become Involved? Zach Exley and I wrote Rules for Revolutionaries, How Big Organizing Can Change Everything, 
because we believe it will take millions of concerned Americans working together to win solutions as radical as the problems we face. Now, with the election of Donald Trump to the presidency, putting power in the hands of the people is even more urgent than ever. We need to build a mass movement powered by volunteers that can do two things. Resist the promised abuses of the Trump administration and build a political revolution big enough to sweep politicians out of office at all levels and elect people who will address income inequality, dismantle structural racism, rebuild our economy, address the climate crisis, and fix our broken immigration and health care systems. One of the first rules in our book is, you don't get a revolution if you don't ask for one. So it's up to us to demand real change in the face of a Trump presidency. People are just waiting to be asked to do something big, to win something big, and we'll need big organizing to defend against the abuses of a Trump presidency and and defeat the forces of Trumpism at the polls in 2018 and 2020. There are several things people can do right now. One, protect the people that Trump attacked during his campaign. Women, immigrants, Muslims, support groups who are actively involved in this, from your local Planned Parenthood clinic to national groups protesting deportations like Mihente and Color of Change, which works to hold police and local district attorneys accountable for prosecuting hate crimes. Two, tell your elected representatives at all levels that you expect them to resist the Trump administration's abuses. Groups leading the way include Credo, Greenpeace, Color of Change, Empower Change, and Move On. Three, support change at the top of the Democratic National Committee. The general election was less of an endorsement of Trump than a resounding defeat for Clintonism and neoliberalism. State party chairs and other members of the DNC will elect a new chair and a new executive director will be hired. The new leader at the DNC must bring the party together around both economic populism and racial justice. This leader will also need the confidence of the grassroots and can't represent continued control by the Clinton machine or anyone responsible for the disastrous Clinton campaign, which handed the White House to Donald Trump. The only current declared candidate that fits that criteria is Congressman Keith Ellison, and he and other candidates who may emerge that are like him need your support. Four, consider running for office on an agenda of change or helping someone run for office. A group of former Bernie Sanders volunteers and staff have an ambitious plan to run 400 candidates for Congress in 2018 and throw the bums out. You can learn more at Brand New Congress. Five, read our book, Rules for Revolutionaries, How Big Organizing Can Change Everything, and use the tactics and strategies we learned on the Bernie Sanders campaign and in our careers in politics to get together with other volunteers and together build a campaign on one of the suggestions above or something else that is important in your community. If an organization is not giving you meaningful work to accomplish urgent go- to accomplish urgent goals, you can join with others and get started together. And that's the only way we're going to stay afloat in this uh, these years of Trump 
is to get together and to continuously fight for what we believe in. Sometimes when we do that, we win. A couple episodes ago, I read a great article on that theme, Sometimes We Win. It was about the fight to reduce the federal government reliance on private prisons, which the Obama administration and Justice Department did eventually concede to do is to get out of the private prison contracts. This is why we fight. We fight to move things in the right direction. And sometimes we win. Here's another piece on that. It is from theguardian.com. And it is written by Evan Greer, Tom Morello, and Evangeline Lilly. It is called The TPP Wasn't Killed by Donald Trump. Our protest worked. The reports are rolling in. The Trans-Pacific Partnership is dead. If you read the obituaries, most news outlets seem to agree that the cause of death was simple. The election of Donald Trump, who railed against the deal during his campaign. But the pundits have the story wrong. The real story is an unprecedented international uprising of people from across the political spectrum took on some of the most powerful institutions in the world and won. Sure, Donald Trump and Bernie Sanders' campaign focus on the TPP elevated U.S. awareness about the pact, a wide-reaching international agreement negotiated by the Obama administration, but no single politician killed this deal. If not for the constant pressure from activists and civil society groups, the TPP would have become law long before the recent U.S. election. But thanks to intense creative and strategic organizing from the day the text was finalized in 2015, there was never a majority of support for the pact in Congress. That is why it was never implemented. The TPP is a massive global deal that was negotiated in secret with hundreds of corporate advisors given special access while the public was locked out. It would have handed multinational corporations like Walmart, AT&T, and Monsanto extraordinary new powers over everything from the wages we earn to the way we use the internet to the safety of the food we feed our children. Perhaps most shockingly, the TPP would have allowed corporations to sue governments before tribunals of three corporate lawyers, essentially creating an unaccountable shadow legal system outside of our traditional courts to punish governments that pass laws that corporations don't like. A simple agreement to lower tariffs and other anti-competitive barriers to trade wouldn't have been so controversial. But big business couldn't resist the urge to abuse the extreme secrecy surrounding the TPP negotiations to stuff the pact with a wish list for policies they knew they could never pass through traditional means. 
That unchecked greed was the TPP's demise. What emerged from the closed-door negotiations was more than 5,000 pages of policy so clearly against the public interest that it awakened a firestorm of opposition that swept the globe and in the end sent the TPP to its grave. While negotiations were still underway, tens of thousands of people joined mass protests in Japan, Peru, Australia, New Zealand, and other Pacific Rim nations. They pushed back on the TPP's worst provisions, held their leaders' feet to the fire, and dragged the talks out for years. This early wave of international resistance changed the game. It bought time for activists to organize an effective opposition in the U.S., which was seen as all-important in the global calculus of the Washington-led deal. If Congress did not ratify the TPP, it would die. In the meantime, an unlikely alliance was forming. Activists, farmers, labor unions, tech companies, environmentalists, economists, nurses, LGBTQ advocates, libertarians, and librarians mounted an intense opposition to the fast-track legislation that the White House needed to rush the final agreement through Congress. The coalition that formed grew from dozens to hundreds to literally thousands of organizations, many working together for the first time, ranging from Black Lives Matter to Doctors Without Borders to the Tea Party. We marched in the streets, we rallied outside the hotels and resorts that hosted the secret negotiations. Cancer patients protesting about the TPP's impact on healthcare access engaged in civil disobedience and were arrested. Internet freedom activists mobilized thousands of websites for online protests that bombarded lawmakers with emails and phone calls. Academics picked apart leaked versions of the deal and coordinated with advocates to launch a campaign to educate the public on its flaws. Hard-hitting activism and public outcry slowed the TPP down and, as a result, dragged it fully into the spotlight just as the U.S. headed into a contentious election season. It wasn't a coincidence that Donald Trump saw the TPP as a useful stump speech talking point. Widespread suffering caused by previous trade deals laid a strong foundation for skepticism, making President Obama's devotion to the Wall Street-friendly deal and Hillary Clinton's previous support for it a huge liability for the Democratic Party. As more and more people learned about what the TPP really meant for them and their families, it became politically toxic, to the point that no major party candidate for president could openly support it. This was a sign that the TPP was on its deathbed, but with the threat of a last-minute push during the lame duck session after the election, we needed to be sure. So we targeted undecided lawmakers with protests and flew inflatable blimps outside of their offices. We harnessed the power of music to draw huge crowds across the country to rock against the TPP concerts and teach-ins, taking our opposition to the TPP into the cultural mainstream. We, turned, we tuned out the chorus of voices that told us that corporate power would always prevail in the end. And finally, we claimed our victory. Now more than ever, it's crucial that Americans understand how the TPP was really defeated. An organized and educated public can take on concentrated wealth and power and win. 
With four years of new battles ahead of us, this is a story we must commit to memory and a lesson we must take to heart. So that was a great piece on the TPP and what it took to defeat it and how hard and how long that battle was and how heartening it was that we prevailed and we won and we defeated the TPP. Don't let anyone tell you that it was Donald Trump or even that it was Bernie Sanders. Both important pieces of the puzzle, but both small pieces of the puzzle. It was not them who led the fight. Bernie may have taken a part in, and did, Bernie took a a significant part in the Senate to lead the fight against it, the fight against Fast Track and the fight against the TPP bill itself and spoke out regularly about it. Uh, He was a key player in the electoral front against the TPP, but that would not have been enough to defeat the TPP if not for all of the people outside calling for its demise. This is exactly what Bernie spoke about in his candidacy, that no candidate, not him, not Hillary, not Donald Trump, can get their agenda passed without a groundswell of support from the public. So we need to make sure that groundswell is there when we want our agenda to move forward, when we want our elected officials to answer to us, we need to be there to tell them what direction we need them to go into. And that's what will move things. That's what will support or oppose, will enact or kill the legislation that runs through our Congress. So it is indeed up to us. So that will wrap up this episode of Bernie 2016, this last and final ever episode of Bernie 2016. But don't fret, coming soon to a device near you is or will be Bernie 2020. So if you want to reach out to me, you can send me a message at BernieUS2020 at gmail.com. You can follow me on Twitter at BernieUS2020. Or you can find out more about Bernie 2020 at Bernie-2020.com. And if you want to support this podcast and all of the future episodes of Bernie 2020, you can pledge your support at patreon.com slash unrelated things. So as we head out on this very last episode of Bernie 2016, we will hear the song See It Through, which I think speaks loudly about the kind of effort that it took to defeat the TPP and the kind of effort that it will take in the future 
for our future struggles. So here, it, uh, this this song, See It Through, is by Ryan Harvey. You can find it on the album Can't Turn Back, Songs from the Global Uprisings by Ryan Harvey. Or you can also find it on the compilation album called Folk the Banks. So here is See It Through by Ryan Harvey. Thanks for listening. They got cops on the streets Walking in lines with taser guns One of the times they're trying to keep you scared The violent attacks, you know it all comes down To how you react and now you're face to face Seeing it all, disperse the warnings And making the call, they got bust to pack With people like you, when they did that in the 50s The movement grew, young student New to the game, movement elder Fan in the flames, combat veteran Seen it before, same tactics used in the fun war Final warning, you're keeping your ground Committed people sitting all around Through the bullhorn, it's all distorted You can't leave now, we can't afford and hold the line Even if your voice shakes Friend of mine Even if your voice shakes Push forward It's up to you See it through Silence breaks, voices loud, rubber bullets crack, pierce the crowd. Hard starts puffing, scared but proud because the people still sitting in a tear gas cloud. The line advances, the swinging sticks in the marching boots and the taser clicks. Screaming erupts, someone got struck, people calling for a medic. They better hurry up, now the vomit comes like a flood. Getting choked by the gas, hands covered in blood. Bruised and beaten, limping away. Remember, it's always been this way. They'll beat you down, show you the guns, get violent sometimes, and then change comes. Stand firm, organize, and then come back to this too many people. For them to attack. You gotta hold the line Even if your voice shakes, friend of mine Even if your voice shakes Push forward, it's up to you See it through Days like this, when something clicks, when you're confused, tired, and scared of shit. But your body's alive, with that heartfelt drive, and you engage the problem right before your eyes. When you could have ran, but you stayed and sat. When you were beaten and gassed, and you still came back, that feeling, the power that you got deep down, rises to the top when you get beat down. There's a world to win when your heart is strong, and it doesn't do wrong to focus on. Every day brings a vision to strive for, something to live and die for. When you go back home and you're on your own, it's easy to feel like you're all alone. But it's through memory and hope that we stay supported, cause we can't quit now, we can't afford. Hold the line, even if your voice shakes, friend of mine. Even if your voice shakes, push forward, it's up to you. See it through.